seated, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible this morning as we continue working our way through the book of Romans. We find ourselves in Romans chapter 4, and we're looking this morning at verses 17 to 25. We touched on 17 ever so briefly last week, but uh, I'm going to read it again for you this morning, and then we're going we're gonna to dig in. So Romans chapter 4, uh, picking it up in verse 17 which, of course, verse 17 is a a continuation of a previous sentence. But Paul does this. He has these long, flowing sentences, and I can't just go back to the very beginning of the sentence. It goes back for like half a chapter. So we're just jumping in uh, in the middle of a sentence here. And uh, for those of you, this is your first time worshiping with us this morning. We go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book of the Bible by book of the Bible. And so um, the, the, the fruit, the, the maximum fruit that comes out of our study and, and the, this time together with the Lord and His Word, it comes through repetition and, and uh, hearing every word that God wants to say to us in context, week after week after week, as He speaks, as He has written His Holy Bible. But uh, we'll start in verse 17, and we'll go to verse 25. The Apostle Paul writes, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him We're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father in heaven, we just thank you for that sweet, sweet time of worship. Lord, you say in your word that... You are seeking those who will worship you in spirit and in truth. And so there are definitely some curveballs that you threw this morning, and we thank you for that. In changing up the leadership and even the songs that were to be sung, you reminded me, Father, and I pray you reminded others as well, that it's about our heart as we look at you. And so our prayer this morning, Lord, is as we have worshipped you in spirit and in truth, that we would continue to hear from you as you speak to our hearts the truth of your word. God, we pray this morning that as we begin this study of the, of the last half of chapter 4, that you would help us to understand what faith is and how we are to grow in faith. Do that, we pray this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, I began experimenting with what it might be like to live life as a blind man. My preacher, Royce Dodd, had shared in the course of one of his messages that he'd had a friend of a friend come and stay with him in his home who was blind. 
and they had hosted this individual and, and had him for dinner. And then as the evening drew to a close, this individual excused himself to go to bed and had made their way down to the hall. And he was blind, by the way. This was a blind individual they were hosting. And he'd made his way down the hall to use the washroom and the light was off. And in, in, my, in Pastor Royce's house, the light switch was awkwardly positioned behind the door, not to the side in which the door opens adjacent from, so you have to reach around behind the door to turn it on. And he began to yell down the hallway towards him, hey, just so you know, the light switch is behind the door. And then he stopped and he realized, I'm giving instructions to a blind man about how to turn on a light switch. He doesn't need the light in the first place. And my pastor was sharing that illustration with me many, many years ago at Cedar Heights Baptist Church as a way of helping the congregation to understand that faith is kind of like learning to use a different sense of perception. It's trying to see something without using your eyes. It is a form of sight, but it is not the kind of sight that relies on your vision. I heard that illustration, and I was quite intrigued, and I went home, and my wife will bear witness that I began to wonder what it might be like to have to learn to make your way in this world by relying upon other senses of perception. And I tied a blindfold, and I got myself a little stick, and in our little cul-de-sac there back in Dallas, Texas, I'm walking around trying to feel for the curb, and the neighbors are driving by thinking, what is wrong with that guy? And uh, it was kind of an interesting experiment. I I only spent about 20 or 30 minutes at it. But one thing that I realized is that um, every little nook and cranny that your stick might find doesn't necessarily signal disaster or catastrophe. But when you're new to trying to learn to make your way using a walking stick, you're not always sure what every nook and cranny represents. Not all of them are absolutely terrifically dangerous, but when you're first learning to see your way in the darkness, you just don't know which is which. That's really how I want you to understand Abraham this morning. That's really how I want you to look at his life as he walked with God. And as we begin to pick apart the life of Abraham, both today and in the days, weeks to come, I want you to wrestle with this question. I see... Well, first off, we should pose the question, do I see Jesus as my Savior? Do I have the faith, do I have the eyes of my heart opened in faith to see Jesus? Number one. But then number two, do I see as much of Jesus as he wants to reveal to me? And for many of us, I think that we stop somewhere in our walk of faith. We get caught up in various trials and challenges And for many of us, we recognize that the things God has called us to in order to increase our faith, to strengthen our faith, many of the things God has called us to, we find just too much trouble, and we don't believe, as God has told us, that there's blessing on the other side of those difficulties. And so the questions I want you to wrestle with this morning and in the weeks to come, are the eyes of your heart opened to seeing Christ? And are you chasing hard after him in faith? We begin in verses 18 and following. The Apostle Paul is trying to argue that salvation is based on faith, not on works. It is on our hoping in God, not on anything that we might do in order to show ourselves righteous. 
or in some way to merit righteousness. We can't, Paul says. Our salvation will always be by the grace of God. He makes that point emphatically clear throughout chapters 3 and 4. And we pick it up here in verse 18. And he, wants, he says in chapter 4 and in verse 18, he says, In hope, talking about Abraham, in hope he believed against hope. Now that is such a strange statement. How does one hope against hope? What does that mean? Well, I think the context makes it clear. There are a couple of ways we might translate it. In fact, if you're using the NAS or the New King James, you'll see it's translated a little bit differently. But the idea is that there was a type of hope that, that Abraham could have based upon his own natural ability. And what God was calling him to was a hope that would require him to completely forsake any dependence or any reliance upon his own natural ability. You'll recall that God had promised Abraham that he would have a child, and that from him, from Abraham, would come nations and tribes and whole groups of people, and that through Abraham's uh, offspring, through his posterity, God would bless the world. Now, this is actually a huge promise. You see, going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, Life was good. And then the tempter came, and he started by making accusations against God. Is God so good? Can you really trust God? The reason God doesn't want you to eat this fruit is because he knows you'll be like him, and he doesn't want that. Satan starts temptation always by accusing the Holy One, suggesting that you can't actually believe what God says. Adam and Eve fell. And all of humanity fell with them. But in the day that God spoke to Adam and Eve about their sin, he offered this assurance. He said, regarding Eve's child, that one day Satan would bruise his heel, but that the offspring of Eve would crush the serpent's head. And so from that moment, Adam and Eve knew that the command to go forth, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to exercise dominion over the earth, they knew that an initial command that God had given them in the garden to have a happy family and to have kids was the process through which God would begin to work out his plan of salvation. God promised that he would bring salvation, but they had a role to play, and it started with children. Centuries go by. The world is destroyed. The flood comes. The ark is built. All of humanity is wiped off the face of the earth with the exception of Noah and his sons. More time goes by. And what of this plan of salvation? God has fallen strangely silent until one day he approaches a man named Abram, which means father. And he promises him that he will become the father of many. Through his offspring, God says, all the world will be blessed. This must be the next step in God's plan of salvation. But there's a problem. Abraham is 100 years old. How many of you would like to give birth to a child at 100 years of age. Some of us, yes, absolutely. 
for many of us, we are still too close to that point in our child's lives in which we can remember being up at all hours of the night, changing diapers and feeding them, and we're thinking, whew, I don't know, I, that took a lot out of me as a 20-something, young 30-something. I can't see myself doing that as a 100-something. Well, Abraham saw it and longed for it. But Abraham also knew that he was 100 years old. From the time that God came and gave this promise to Abraham to the time that the child was actually born, there are a number of years that pass and still no child. And in fact, Abraham, in his desire to try and make good on God's promise, worked out an arrangement with his wife, Sarah, whereby he took her maidservant, Hagar, and began the process of having a child with her. And God was quite clear, this is not the child of promise. Over and over again, God is try- Abraham is trying to bring, through his own human power, the promise of God to fulfillment. And God is quite clear, you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. But when they first hear this promise, they laugh. Sarah laughs, Abraham laughs. But God says, it will happen. When Abraham hears that promise, he believes. When Abraham tries to fulfill the promise through Hagar and is told quite clearly, that is not the promise that I made. That is not going to work. Abraham realizes, I'm 100 years old. My wife is 90 years old. There is simply no way we can conceive. There is no way we can bring a child into this world. It will have to be by the grace of God. Our context here tells us that this expression hoping against hope, means that Abraham didn't, there's not some sort of opposition between hoping in God and and not hoping in God. That's not what the text is telling us. What Paul means to do here is to show that there's a kind of trust that we can have where we rely upon our own natural abilities, and the kind of trust that God is calling for is where we believe in him above and beyond any means of our own to bring into reality to bring to fruition the promises that he makes. And the context, I think, bears this out. If you look with me again, it says in verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope, as the ESV translates it. I would say that probably another way to understand this is he believed beyond hope. And I would say that that second word hope is best understood as referring to his own natural ability to conceive and have children, as the context makes clear. Verse 18, it says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. God had made that promise to him. Verse 19, it says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. For all my 55 pluses here, how many of you, when you look in the mirror, you're like, yep, I'm a goner. This is pretty much the end of the road for my body. How many of you feel that way? Some of you. So I just want to point out that uh, for all of those of you that are, I don't know, between 55 and 93, you don't have room to complain yet because we got Homer Bloomfield in the, in the room this morning, right? Homer, 96, I think. Is that right, Homer? Nine, 97, I beg your pardon. 97. So after the service, just ask Homer how he'd feel about having a baby. Okay? That's a great way to illustrate this. Abraham is looking at his own body 
And he's like, it's not going to work, guys. Like this, I can't, I've, and he tried with Hagar, a much younger woman, but he realizes if God's promise is going to happen, if it's going to come true, it will only come true because God makes it come true. In other words, it will be by grace. It will be done by God or it won't be done at all. This then is the contrast we see here. He hoped in God against any hope that he might have had in himself. That is what I think is the best way to understand that expression based upon the context. Now, verses 20 to 21, it goes on. It says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. The text here shows us that having hope in God and growing in our faith in God, much like everything else in life, is a process. We do not grow immediately, invincibly strong in faith overnight, though many of us, I dare say, have deceived ourselves at some point in time into thinking that we do so. Walking with God as an act of faith is very much so just like growing up like a little child. It starts off by first learning how to crawl, and then you take that first wobbly step where you're falling all over the place just learning how to keep your balance. Eventually, you're learning to tie your shoes. Eventually, you're learning to run. We recognize today the fact that our kids are growing older, that God is working in their life, that they are growing in wisdom, and we pray that they're growing in spiritual maturity. We see that, but that is also the process for every single one of us here, regardless of how old we are. I dare say, even up to my dear brother, Homer Bloomfield, who has been a giant of faith in this church, we're still growing in our faith. Abraham is learning this at 100 years of age. Sarah is learning this at 90 years of age. Are you learning this? We have to step back then and ask ourselves, what is faith? What is it that we're trying to grow in? We're trying to grow... If I could put it in layman's terms, we're trying to grow in our ability to see something that we can't see with the eyes in our head. And scripture actually speaks to this. There is more than one kind of seeing. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said in Matthew chapter 13, seeing they do not see. He points out that the Pharisees have eyesight, that they see stuff, but they don't see what they ought to be capable of seeing. It's possible to see in one way while not seeing in another way. The difference that the Bible teaches us is that there are two kinds of eyes, the eyes of the head and the eyes of the heart. In fact, this isn't like language that evangelical preachers have made up. This is biblical language. This is biblical terminology. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that his prayer for the church at Ephesus is that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened. The eyes of your heart. That's a metaphor for being capable of seeing something from the core of your soul. And he's praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would be given light to see something, as though you're a blind man walking into a bathroom and God is calling out after you, turn on the light switch, and really what is trying to happen there through prayer, God speaking to this church at Ephesus, is that they would be capable of seeing something beyond what they can actually see with their eyes. He says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So there is such a thing, church. There is such a thing as being capable of seeing with something more 
than just the eyes in your head. There is such a thing as being able to perceive spiritual truth with your heart and soul. And it's a seeing that comes that is different from the seeing that comes in the eyes of your head. What you see, how you see it, depends upon your perspective. And your perspective is going to be framed by the desires of your heart. Do you want to see God? Moses, having served God faithfully for so many years, said, God, show me your glory and it'll be enough for me. And God's response was, I can't show you my glory. Any man, any flesh and blood that sees my glory on the day that he sees it will surely die. And and Moses says, I'll tell you what, you just put your hand over me and hide me in the cleft of the rock. And as you pass by, let me see it. Sorry, that's what God proposes. Moses' desire was basically, I'll see your glory. I don't care. I just want to see your glory. But then God proposes this, and Moses is able to see the glory of God from the backside. Just a brief, fleeting moment. But the reason I bring that to your attention today is because that was his desire. He wanted to see it. Do you desire to see the Lord? What we are capable of seeing through faith is framed largely upon what we want to see. When my child was young, she would take great joy in taking a spoon and dropping it into a glass of water and then saying, Daddy, I just performed a magic trick. And I would say, what's that, dear? And she'd say, without doing anything at all, I have bent the spoon. As the spoon had dropped into the glass of water, the refraction of the light through the water made it look like the handle, once it had gone in, was kind of bent. A phenomenon that we've all seen a thousand times in our own lives. For many of us, if we want to see a crooked spoon, we can believe that there's a crooked spoon there. But the truth is, is that the spoon never changed shape one way or the other. It was just the light to see it was refracted through the glass. In the same way, God hides himself from those who would seek him with ulterior purposes, with a different agenda. In fact, Scripture says that it is his delight to reveal himself to little children, but to conceal himself from the wise and the proud of heart. How we see God, then, is determined by the desires we have as we approach God. Moses lamented regarding the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 29. He said, To this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see. It wasn't that God had struck the whole nation blind. It was simply that they were not approaching God with the same faith that Moses had. And as a result, God had not opened their eyes to see him the way he had opened the eyes of Moses. And so it was also in the days of the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 12, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but they see not. And we see through the prophet Ezekiel that that seems to be the key. If we would see God, would we see him in faith? And would that faith result in obedience? Because if we have no desire to obey, if we have no desire to step out in faith, 
then why would God show himself to us? This is what is happening amongst the world. Idolatry. They are incapable of seeing because they do not want to see. Indeed, they see something else that they much prefer. The idols of their own hearts and their own minds. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 135, the idols of the nations are the work of their own human hands. They have eyes, but they see not. Those who make them, referring to idols, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. The irony here is that he's describing a literal idol, like a thing that's been carved and maybe overlaid with some gold and some silver. You set that little statue up in your house, and what can it do for you? Nothing. It's in my opinion, kind of gaudy, in fact. Have you ever seen statues of idols? I mean, it's a weird-looking thing. They oftentimes will carve these things with animal heads and human bodies and weird shapes and figures. They'll adorn them with diamonds and all of this kind of stuff. But they're actually hoping that this thing will represent some sort of a power that can save them. Scripture tells us that they become deaf and mute and blind and dumb, just like the carved thing that they've made. Make and trust a blind idol, and you become blind. So you apply that principle to our world today. Think of our own idols. I can't get over the fact at VBS, we were a couple, this is back in July. I said, do you think, I was pretending to be the Apostle Paul, and we had kids, they were visiting Rome, visiting the Apostle Paul while he's in jail in Rome. And I remember speaking to several of the kids, and I said, You know, here in Rome, we worship a lot of different gods. How about you, your country, where you come from? Do you worship a lot of gods? And one little boy said, no, we just worship the one true God. And I was like, I don't think so. Are you sure about that? And he comes from a Christian home, so he was speaking from within the context of his own Christian home. But I told him, I said, why don't you ask your dad if the country you live in, if they actually worship the one true God? What do we worship? Things like toys, technology, iPhones, latest iMac or whatever fancy new gadget there is out there. I think a very great many of my neighbors live for the weekend, not so that they can go and worship the Lord, but so that they can go and amuse themselves. I look around in my neighborhood and I see RVs and I see cars and I see quads and I see side-by-sides and all of these things, snowmobiles. And I wonder how much of that was purchased in order to satisfy an itch for fun or amusement, a desire that can only really be satisfied through knowing and worshiping God. Our world tries to compress the void for God in its heart into shapes like a new boat or a new RV. And the result of that is that we are, for a time, sated with the joy that comes from having that new toy, but it quickly fades. And then what is it that we want? More of the same. We just want another toy, another gimmick, another device, another trip. And so our hearts and our affections become shaped and molded and formed 
by those things. They compress our heart to take on the shapes of the things that we're using as idols in our lives. They seem to fit the shapes of our hearts, and as a result, they feel good. They fill the tiny spaces that they have made. But in this readiness to take pleasure from the things that we've created, we are ill-shaped to desire Jesus. As a result of that, he seems unreal, unattractive, and the eyes of our hearts grow dull. You're looking here at this passage in Romans, and you might be tempted to think that what Abraham wants more than anything is a child. But God's statement to Abraham in Genesis 17 was, Rejoice, Abraham. Take joy. I am your shield, your very great reward. Abraham wanted to know God. Abraham wanted to be with God, but Abraham is operating out of this promise made centuries before to Adam and Eve, who were driven from the garden and from the presence of God, that if they would be reconciled to God, it would require a son whose heel would be bruised, and that son would crush the serpent's head. And that's ultimately what Paul is driving towards in this text. Look at the very last two verses, verses 24 and 25. Paul says, It will be counted to us who believe in him, in God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The scriptures are saying that what's going to be counted to us is the same thing that was counted to Abraham. Abraham didn't know the name of Jesus. He didn't know exactly how the plan of salvation was going to unfold, but he had been told that it would come through his heritage through his offspring, that all the nations would be blessed. He longs for a child in order to fulfill God's plan for his life, but that is not ultimate to him. His child isn't his idol. Having kids is not going to be the thing that satisfies Abraham. He wants God, but he wants God through fulfilling the promises that God has made to him. And this is where we have to be very clear in our definitions of faith. Very oftentimes, we, str- we set out to do big things for God. We want to see things accomplished and fulfilled. But they begin to take on a life of their own in place of God. And that is the mistake none of us can afford to make. We come back to that text here. And it says in verse 20, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Notice that. However the promise is fulfilled, however many years I wander waiting for a child, whatever is going to happen, day by day, I'm worshiping and praising God. I'm resting in his plan. I'm not resting in what I can achieve and in what I can accomplish in my own strength. It's going to be the Lord. He's going to be the one to do it. What made Abraham strong in his faith was regardless of whatever happened, he knew God was in control and he was going to worship him. Here's the challenge for you and me today. Do we rest in God's plan for our life? Are we even looking to see what God has for our life? Do we count on the promises that God makes to us? And do we seek to pursue a deeper knowledge of God through those promises? Not for the sake of the promises, but for the sake of knowing him. That's the question I pose to you this morning. Now, 
I would like to read to you a Bible verse. And I don't want you to flip there. I just want you to listen. And this verse was very convicting to me, oh, about 10 years ago now, I think it was. This is from the book of Philemon. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church, writing to Philemon, he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. You break it down there. He's not talking about sharing in terms of uh, you know, evangelism. He's not saying go out and share your faith. He's talking about the fellowship of faith. And he's saying to Philemon, I pray that as you have fellowship with other believers within your church, as you have this fellowship, that that fellowship would be effective for a fuller knowledge, a deeper knowledge of everything that Christ has given to us, everything that is in us for the sake of Christ Jesus. There I was, tired, exhausted. It's Christmas season. I've been to a number of events, a number of functions. I've been invited over to the Savage's house to have uh, to, to go to a Christmas party. And I didn't want to go because I was tired. I wasn't so tired that I couldn't go. I just didn't want to go. Have you ever been there? How many of us have been there just this last week? I have been. I didn't go to an event that I was invited to on Friday night. And now in retrospect, I'm kind of glad because I'm not sick. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that you should avoid events on the outside chance that you might come down with food poisoning. That's not what I'm saying. These things do tend to happen. But here's what I learned 10 years ago. I was invited over to Dustin and Christine's house. I didn't want to go, but I had been working my way through the book of Philemon, and I knew that God's blessing of joy comes into my life through the fellowship that is enjoyed amongst believers. There is joy that I have in knowing God, but a part of that joy that he gives to me comes through walking in a close relationship with other believers within my church. I was invited to go to this thing. I was kind of having a bad attitude. I was full on having a bad attitude. Here I am trying to justify myself and like water it down a bit. I was just having a bad attitude. No excuses. And I had been sharing with Shanti about this verse uh, previously in the day and how, you know, I'd been going on about how we need to be people who fellowship with each other. And then the uh, afternoon gets away from us and it's time to go to dinner at a friend's house. I'm like, oh, I don't want to go. And of course, she was just like, <laughs> and she broke it out. Oh, didn't, I'm sorry, weren't you like saying something to me this morning about this Bible verse? That's why I love my wife and all men should love their wives because they hold us accountable. It's, it's not a joke. Our, our heads know what is right, but our bodies grow weak. I went just so I wouldn't look like a hypocrite, not because I was actually seeking the fulfillment of the promise. I went to this thing. You had to wear an ugly Christmas sweater. It was like an ugly Christmas sweater thing. And I didn't have an ugly Christmas sweater because I don't buy Christmas sweaters because all, they all go bad in time. Like you can't, you can't buy a Christmas sweater today and have it work next year. It just won't work. So I never buy it. So I had to make one. I'm like sewing like ornaments onto a sweater so it'll look like an ugly Christmas sweater. And the whole time I'm like, ah, this is bad. We go, and do you know what happened? I had the time of my life. I went out of obedience, my attitude was wrong, but I knew the promise of God in Scripture. And I went mostly because I didn't want to be a hypocrite. God still blessed me. I laughed that evening like I haven't laughed in years. I relaxed and enjoyed fellowship with godly people. We ate really good food. We played games the hour grew really late, and I didn't even want to leave. Here I am, a guy that just wants to sit at home and sit in my lazy boy and not do anything. 
I'm having a bad attitude. I don't even want to hope in God's promise in his word. My wife drags me. And God still fulfilled the promise of his word despite my best efforts to resist him. Now, again, you can't push this too far, church. You can have a bad attitude and you can pursue the things and the promises of God with the wrong heart. And he is under no obligation to fulfill any of the promises of his word if you pursue them the wrong way. My point in sharing this with you is to say that God's word is true. And if we would enjoy the blessings that he offers us, we must take him at his word, believe that what he says is correct, and follow him in obedience. Not so that we'll enjoy a good evening, per se. Not so that we'll be able to manage our finances better, per se. But all of this is a step towards knowing more of him. He is your treasure. He is your reward. This morning, as the worship service comes to a conclusion, we're challenging you this morning to get involved with your church family. It says here in Romans that Abraham grew in his faith as he gave glory to God. You have an opportunity this morning. You've come, you've worshiped, but there is so much more that God is calling you to. He's calling you to be involved. He's calling you to be a part of a church family. And this morning, we want to share that with you. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 to 40, it comes at the tail end of that great chapter, that hall of fame of faith. It says all these individuals who had the faith to go out and accomplish all these things, it says all these, though commended through their faith, didn't receive what was promised since God had provided for something far better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise is coming to all of us. It's coming to us together. There is no individual Lone Ranger Christian here. God loves us all. He's going to bless us all as a family, which means that if you're walking with God and you understand his desire to bring the ultimate blessing into all of our lives, that ultimate blessing of resurrection and inheriting all of the promises of Scripture, if that's your desire, he wants to bring it to all of us, then you also have to have a desire for those around you to seek their blessing because God seeks their blessing in that way. And in case that's a little bit abstract for you, let me give it to you in layman's terms. The same apostle writing to the church at Ephesus says, and I quote, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's you. God has given pastors and evangelists in your life to equip you for ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ, the text says, until we all attain unto the unity of the faith. Now, these are not random verses that do not belong to this current passage here in Romans chapter 4. You see the connection. The hall of fame of faith, the unity of the faith. We're talking about Abraham, the father of those who have faith. All of these things are interrelated. If faith is the exercise to see with the eyes of the heart that which cannot be seen with the eyes in your head, then what I'm asking you to do right now is to suspend all judgment, to set aside all your worldly wisdom, and to look at the scriptures. God's calling you to a blessing. You may not fully be able to realize or appreciate what it is, but that does not change his calling on your life. And that blessing comes 
through being engaged with the body, using whatever gifts and talents God has given you in order to build up the body. And on the backside of that effort, there is this promise of joy and blessing. So you say, well, I'm too busy. Of course you are, just like Abraham was too old. You say, well, I've got other things I'd rather do. Of course you do, just like all the people back on earth that Abraham left behind. You say, well, that's really pointed, preacher. Yes, it is, because Scripture says so. I know we live very difficult, very busy lives, and I know we have to work to make a living. But I also know that God has not placed any single person here in such a position that he is beyond walking by faith in what God has called him to. Whatever your circumstances may be, whatever your challenges are, God is waiting. Do you believe in him? This morning, we and for the weeks to come, I've just introduced the topic this morning, but the text is quite clear. Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. This morning, we invite you to give glory to God by stepping out in faith and obedience to what God is calling you to. At the conclusion of the worship service this morning, we're going to tell you everything there is to know about all the various ministries and the ways you can get involved in terms of edifying and building each other up in our church body. You should stop at those tables and talk to those individuals as you leave here today. And you should seek, not because preacher told you you had to, although I am telling you you have to. You should seek to get involved, not because preacher is telling you you have to, but because God is waiting with the promise of blessing on the other side of that table. I went to a Christmas party 10 years ago when I walked away with some of the dearest friends I've ever known. Could I have stayed at home and watched some hokey Christmas special on Netflix in the comfort of my lazy boy? Yeah. But I would have missed out on the blessing of the friends that have challenged me in my walk with God, that have led me in worship, and that have opened my eyes to see great and marvelous truths from Scripture. I know more of Him because I enjoyed fellowship with them and there was blessings that came as a result of the promise that God made in his word. This morning, you have the chance to get involved with various ministries, discipling the next generation. As God has called us to raise up the next generation, Awana, Sunday school, nursery, youth. With regards to fellowship, you've got opportunities to get involved. Perhaps you're not good at teaching. You don't know very much about the scriptures, but you know fellowship is important. And perhaps you have a gift for cooking. Some of you are saying, I don't have a gift for cooking. At a minimum, you can chop vegetables. That's what I do. Get involved with kitchen ministry. There's men's ministry. There's ladies' ministry. Think of this passage from 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Well, what does that really look like according to God's word? Wouldn't you need other men that you're working through this passage with together in order to help you to see? Perhaps you're here and you're a lady and you know you should be involved with other ladies in the church. Consider this passage from 1 Peter chapter 3. Don't let your adorning be external. 
the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Ladies, we invite you to walk together to learn how to walk with the Lord, to have a spirit that is precious and beautiful in his eyes. Whether you're 55 plus and you're learning to grow into those sunset years in wisdom, or whether you're a little one that was just born into the nursery, God has a plan to bring blessing into your life. And you need to find that plan. I don't think I'm the only one here that has realized what the last two years have shown us. The world is getting increasingly dark and increasingly hostile towards Christianity and the worship of God. Jesus says to you and me, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand so that it can give light to all those in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God is calling us to let our light shine. He's calling us to let our light shine together. But do you know what's really interesting about that passage? Just two verses before, he talks about the hardships and the trials and the tribulations that we will all face. Just two verses before, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, great is your reward in heaven. We're called to let our light shine, but we're told before we're ever called to let our light shine to take care to realize that there will be trouble, there will be darkness, there will be opposition. People are going to try to silence you in your faith. Who will encourage you if not the brother and sister sitting next to you. Many, many, many years ago, there were two church planters in Oklahoma. One of them had been, had his character tarnished, had been accused of all manner of things, and he'd had enough. This, the church he'd been struggling to plant he basically came to a point where he said, I'm, I'm done. And the two missionaries' names were Hogan and Hayes. And so Hogan had said to his friend, I'm quitting. I'm going back home. This is just too much for me. And Hayes said, I understand. It's very hard. Of course, I would probably consider leaving if I was in your shoes too. But before you go, how about we sing a song together? You know it's a trap, right? And Bradford Hayes got out his guitar and he strummed the tune and they sang... Am I a soldier of the cross? Am I a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody, turbulent seas? Are there no more foes left for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is it true this vile world, a friend of grace, to help me on toward God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil. I'll endure the pain. 
supported by my friends, supported by your word. When they got through singing the song, Hogan turned to Hayes and he said, I knew it was a trap. I'm staying. (laughs) Church, God has not called us to flowery beds of ease. We know that. So then the question is, will we link arms and hold on to each other? My prayer for you this morning is that you would let your light shine. Get involved and shine brightly with this church. Let's pray. Father, we pray, God, that as we leave these this sanctuary, as we depart from each other's company, that we would commit, Lord, to walking together closely as a fellowship. Lord, as a new year of ministry begins, as a new season of service is about to start, Father, help us to walk together as brothers and sisters. Help us to stand together as a church. Help us, Lord, to shine your light to this dark and dying world. Not, Lord, that we would be self-righteous or pat ourselves on the back or think much of ourselves, but that we, through shining that light, would come to understand more and more of your son, Jesus, and would be drawn closer and deeper in our walk with you. Do that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.